Everything he did was building to this climactic moment where he built us. We are what is special about creation. We are the thing that God was excited to prepare a place for and to share with. Reach College Podcast with your speaker, Pastor Taylor Gap. We are going to start a series on Genesis today. Um, and I want to start by just answering the question you may not have, which is, um, why Genesis? Right? And, I'll, and I, I, I'll tell you exactly why. I had uh, several of you at the beginning of this year as you were all motivated with your New Year's resolutions and starting <laughs> your reading plans in Genesis come up to me and say, I'm reading in Genesis and I'm just not getting anything out of it. And after I like recovered from the shock, I decided that it was necessary to sit down and, and say, okay, look, this is what's happening in Genesis. This is why this book is important. This is why this book is amazing. And part of the problem really is that we see it in just these disjointed Bible stories. Like we're like, oh, there's like this story about this guy with a boat. And then there's this other story about these people that build a tower. And like none of this stuff makes sense. But the thing is, it's not a disjointed story. It is one story. It's one book that is telling this, uh, essentially, what I've called the march of redemption. This idea that that God took the fall that we're going to see uh, in the next couple weeks and immediately before it even happened, had begun a plan to redeem us, to make us right with him in spite of this, right? And so uh, I have, I've called this the March of Redemption. It's gonna be actually four different series in Genesis, and here's why. It's, I, I mapped out 44 lessons, and um, we will all burn out if I do 44 straight lessons. That's like a year's worth in just Genesis. Um, and one thing, uh, if, if you haven't caught on to this, one thing I want you guys to realize is you could spend so much time in any given chapter of the Bible. I mean, I could have spent a year just in Romans and still not run out of material, right? So the reason that we go through things at what may be a little bit of a fast clip is because this is not, this room right here is not the multi-generational church. I don't have you for two decades. So I, I need, what I want to do is give you a, a broad grasp of a lot of scripture, not sit in one place and you leave here and you're like, man, I understand the book of Galatians so well, but I've got nothing else, right? So what I'm going to do is we're going to do four series, four split up series in Genesis, and we're going to go back and forth between Genesis and some stuff in the New Testament. So we're going to do first and second Corinthians. We're going to do Hebrews. Uh, it, interspersed with Genesis, okay? But today we're going to start Genesis. Uh, there are a couple of goals as I talk about Genesis. One thing I want you to see in Genesis is we're going to talk about what the book is actually trying to teach you, all right? Starting off strong, right? We're going to get into creation story today, and we're going to ask the question, you know, what what is the point of this book or this chapter, and was the world created in seven you know, or six 24-hour days, right? That's going to be the question. So I want you to see what the what Genesis is actually trying to teach you versus what we've just like artificially injected into the book and made the point when it's not the point, okay? The next thing I want to talk about is I want to defend this idea of that the, that the Israelites were copying other religions. So there's this popular notion out there that all there's all these older religions that have similar themes, and because of that, the Israelites were actually, they were just making up their religion by pulling in things they liked from other places and kind of modifying it, okay? Now, let me, let me just stop right there and explain to you briefly why that's not true, and then you're going to see this over and over and over again. Okay, if I want to explain to you something infinite and not understandable, it's really hard to start with that object. So if I said, okay, everyone brace yourself, we're, I'm going to explain the Trinity, right? And then I come over here to the whiteboard and I've got like a marker and I'm like, okay, it's three and one. 
but the three are separate, but they're all one, but they are different, but they're all the same, and there's three, but they're not together, but they're, like, you're already, like, head spinning, right? Okay, so what the Israelites were doing is that they were taking popular notions around them that people knew and understood, and they were saying, okay, this is your God, but our God is an infinite of that, better, bigger, stronger than what you have, right? So there are actually intentionally copied portions of the Old Testament from other religions, but it's actually almost like they're mocking these other religions. They're saying, yeah, the, the problem your God has, our God doesn't have that problem because he's bigger. But they started with something that you could grasp to jump off to this thing that you can't grasp. This God that is so big, it's impossible to fit it in your head. So we're going we're gonna to point out multiple times throughout the books where that's happening. We're not going to catch everyone. I don't know everyone. But now when you're at your schools or, or wherever and somebody goes, yeah, but the Israelites were just copying like, look at this verse. This is a copy of this other ancient Mesopotamian manuscript. You will know why. You will understand what's happening there. Okay? Um, so we're going to start with Genesis 1, the creation story. Uh, a couple things about Genesis 1. First of all, the genre. It is a creation myth. Now, everyone, hang on. Right? I know I just said the word myth, and somebody in here is like, he's about to tell us that it's not true. Okay, that is not what I'm saying. There is a, a genre called creation myths in the ancient Near East writing style, okay? Why I need you to understand that that is what Genesis 1 fits into, the word myth does not mean it's untrue. It's a writing style that tells us certain things about the points they were trying to get across to us. I'll give you an example. Jesus, he talks about a man, he tells a parable, and he talks about a man who gave talents to his servants and he, and he left, and then he comes back. Was that story a true and historical event that Jesus was retelling? Maybe. It could have been. But that's not the point. The point Jesus is trying to make is not, well, you remember Fred down the road? Fred left on a trip. Like, he's not telling you because he wants you to understand about Fred. He's making a point that is, that is more important, that is bigger and more spiritual. So the creation myth, the idea is, we're going to see what it's actually trying to tell us, and, and it's important that we know what genre it's in so that we know what it's pointing us toward. Um, the main thing I want you to understand about a, a creation myth, first of all, there's elements of poetry in it, and we know when we read through the Psalms that we don't interpret all poetry literally or literalistically, right? But we know that, uh, and, and the main thing we learn about a creation myth is that it has a timeless value. It has a timeless value. And I don't mean in like a um, bedtime story kind of way. I mean like the, what is true about it is truth for all time. It will never change, okay? Uh, and, and again, we'll dissect this a little bit more. But what you need to know is that the point of Genesis 1 is the point. You can't take every element and dissect it down. That's what that's where we go wrong with parables because we take a parable and we dissect it to the nth degree and we find things that don't hold up against the rest of Scripture because we took it too far. So we need to understand what the actual point is, what's true about the story, and what and understand that the details of the story are not always making the point we think they are. Um, one one way I can show this to you is. If I say to you, man, I was outside and that car just flew by, right? Nobody in the room is like, there was a car that was flying. He saw it. He saw a flying car. Like, you understand that I'm telling you about how fast the car went, right? But, you know, maybe in a thousand years when they dig up that statement and they're like, wow, they had flying cars back in Tulsa this year, right? Like, that, that, that would be a misinterpretation of what I was saying, right? Um, another way you can see this in the Bible is that you can find verses that say things like, the sun rises and the sun sets. And you're like, yeah, and so? What's moving in that verse? The sun is, okay? But we know that we're revolving around the sun, not the other way around. But for a long time, people were like, no, 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 no. The Bible says the sun is moving, so it can't be any other way. And they were dogmatic about it to the point of silliness, right? So we need to understand what the Bible is actually trying to tell us. Now, here's what I want you to understand what I'm not saying. What I am not saying to you this morning, and, and don't hear me at any point say this, 
I am not telling you that the world was not created in seven literal 24 hours days. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that's not the point of Genesis 1. That may be the case. Let's, let's put it to you like this. Did God need seven full days to make the world? No, he could have done it in seven seconds. He could have done it in seven billion years. I don't, I don't know. I'm not told. If you want to, I'm okay with you, with you believing that this, that this is talking about seven little days. I don't think that's outside of the realm of, of things that can be true. What I'm saying is that's not the point. And when we focus on that, we miss the point. We miss what's actually being said in the scripture, okay? So we're not going to focus on, well, this word and that word and the order, really, it could be, you know, 24-hour days, or it could be that these 24-hour days had, you know, long periods of time in between. I don't care. The timeline is not important. That's not what God was doing when he gave us Genesis chapter 1, okay? So that's what we're going to look at when we look at this. Uh, and, and as a side note, I want you to understand First of all, you should look at look up the book uh, Seven Days That Separate the World. Seven Days That Separate the World is a book about this entire debate. It's fantastic. It's a beginner-level book, and it's by an evangelical Christian who believes in the authority of Scripture. And he he's actually the one that makes the point. He's like, at one point, the church just absolutely, there's no way around it. The sun is revolving around us, right? And he starts there and then begins to unpack Genesis and say, what could this say? What is not out of bounds for this to say? So, I highly encourage you to, to look at that book if you want to dig deeper into that specific topic. I'll also tell you this. I didn't know this, so I'm just, I think it's important as a side note. There's a difference between evolutionary theory and old earth theory, like old earth creationism. Didn't know that. Like I grew up, there's one right answer. It's young earth. It's seven literal 24-hour days all right in a row. And so for me, there was kind of a, a shock moment of looking deeper into the subject and going, oh, you can actually believe in old earth creationism and it has nothing to do with evolution so i just want you to know there's nuance to the argument again i'm not telling you that which one is right or wrong i'm telling you that that's not the point of genesis chapter one okay so uh, if that's not the point then what is one of the points that we're going to make today is that chaos is brought under control it is ordered by god he took what what was not tamed and he tamed it he made it orderly he designed it for a purpose. Uh, something that's that I want you to note in that is uh, you can look at old Mesopotamian or Egyptian or just ancient Near Eastern uh, creation myths, and you can see these kind of differences. Their, their creation myths try to tell us the origin of the gods. Genesis never even tries to do that. Genesis does not tell us the origin of God. It tells us that in the beginning, God was. He was already there. He pre-exists time and creation and then uh, and then begins to try and explain our origins, matter's origins, human's origins, right? So that's already a difference between the religions, right, that would have stood out to an ancient reader of this text. Uh, the next thing is ancient Near Eastern text often had creation coming out of a struggle between gods. So as gods would fight, things would kind of burst forth into formed matter, right? Also not the case here. See, because the God in Genesis is in complete control. He is ordering everything calmly. He's speaking it into existence. He's making it so by his commands. He's not struggling to do any of this. We see in the creation myths that they are usually just reordering matter that already exists. Our God creates matter out of nothing. We see that the gods are connected to or in nature. But what you're going to see in Genesis 1 is that our God is completely outside of nature and, and disconnected, not disconnected, but he, is, he transcends nature. Nature is not something that's emanating from him. See, in, in other creation myths, nature is something that overflows from the gods. It's sort of like their personality becomes matter. Well, that's not the case in the Bible. See, God is producing matter as an act of his will. He's choosing to create. It's not an accident that's just flowing forth from him. That's one point, is that chaos is brought under control. It's ordered. The second one we'll see is that God created everything, and man is the pinnacle act of his creation. We are the, the final climactic thing that he created. Okay, that's, that's important. Uh, there's, some, there's a theme that's going on in this 
you'll see in Genesis chapter 1, well, I'm sorry, you won't see it because it's not in English, but in Genesis chapter 1, I'll tell you that the word used for God is Elohim. It is a word that means God in general. It's describing the creator God. It's designed to point to the all-powerful original God that creates everything. And then when we get to chapter 2, it switches to Yahweh, which the Israelites would have understood as the God of covenant. Why is that important? Because the writer is saying these are the same God. He's saying the God of the covenant did not just show up to this already created earth and is trying to kind of save his people, pull out his piece of the pie. No, as a matter of fact, the God of the covenant created and controls everything. He is the only true God and he orders all of creation, right? So that's important. Uh, The last piece we'll see is that God prepared a place to rule and to rest with us. And that really, that is going to be the primary thing that I want you to take from Genesis 1. God prepared a place to rule and to rest with us. It is not, the, the Genesis story, again, it's not about a scientific explanation of the first, uh, you know, what is it, like 186 hours or something? Like, it, it, that's not the point. The point is God did all of this to share this fellowship and this community and his glory with us. Okay, um, a way that we can see the point of Genesis one is structurally. Okay, if you know anything about ancient Israelite writing, seven is the number for perfection. Uh, generally, it's it means like something was perfected or or close to perfect. Or and then if you see three, three is an emphasis. They don't have a lot of punctuation, so they would say something three times to to bring it to the front of your brain, to to, to draw it out to the forefront. That's the way that they exclaimed something by repeating it three times. So what you're going to see is the obvious one, uh, there are seven days. You're going to see three pairs of days with one unmatched day. In verse 1-1, it has seven Hebrew words. In verse 1-2, it has 14 Hebrew words. At day seven, it has 35 Hebrew words, so all multiples of seven. And in the seventh day, we see the term seventh day used three times. It makes it the climax of the entire story. Um, God speaks ten times. Seven of those times are commands to creatures or creation, and three of those are proclamations about humanity. God says it was good or sees that it was good seven times, and the last one being very good. The more and more you see the structure, the less and less you can look at this text and say, the point is it was 168 literal hours. That's not the point. That's not what the the writer is trying to get at. So we're going to cut past that surface level kind of pop culture argument, and we're going to look at what the text is actually saying. Why is it important that God controls chaos, life, and prepared a place for us? The reason is because how can we trust God if he can't control the chaos? It's really scary out there. And if God isn't in control, if he does not order chaos, we, we have a real problem. The second reason is because if God is not in control of life, how can he save us from death? We need a God that has power over life and death. And the third thing, it's important that God prepared a place for us because that immediately tells us that he loves us. This is not an impersonal God that's just kind of going out doing stuff on a whim. He cares about us. If I, uh, let's say I, it's my wife's birthday, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cook her breakfast before she gets up, and then I'm going to give her a card that I already bought that has a note in it, and then later um, I'm going to give her a gift that I had to actually shop for, and at dinner time I'm going to take her to a, a restaurant that I had to make a reservation at. What you see in that is a lot of thought and preparation. You see something that I planned And it means something because it was prepared, because there was effort that went into it before she ever knew about it, right? Alternatively, if I wake up the morning of her birthday and panic and put a half-burnt candle into like a a cupcake or, you know, maybe a muffin we had earlier in the week and sing her happy birthday and go to CVS and pick up like a stuffed animal and then we order pizza, like that's not very well prepared. That's a pretty like last second kind of day. Now, I mean, is she going to love me any less because of that? Probably. 
But <laughs> but that's that's not the point. The point is that you know the difference between a prepared day, something with a lot of thought and care, and the opposite. Nothing, right? It's something that's just thrown together at the last second. Okay, so the first thing we're going to look at is this idea of chaos being ordered. The first three days of creation, God is going to order creation. He is going to, largely what you're going to see is God separating things. He's saying, no, 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 this goes over here and has a boundary, and this goes over here and it has a boundary. He is ordering what he has brought into existence. Look with me at Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and desolate, emptiness, uh, and desolate emptiness, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Okay, so the first thing I want you to understand is that verses 1 and 2, I've looked at all the kind of the arguments on this. I think that verses 1 and 2 are a like a subject statement or a title, if you will. Basically, the author is saying, this is the story of creation. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, and then he's going to launch into the details of what that what that looks like, right? But he starts with this title statement, right? And he says that the that the earth that's been created, it was empty or void or desolate. It, it was chaos. It was darkness, right? There's actually, uh, for as many different translations as there are in this room, there are different translations of that single phrase because there is a really am, ambiguous phrase. They don't actually know uh, specifically what those words were trying to communicate, but pretty much, if you were to gather up all the different, you know, versions that we have, generally the same idea. Just this kind of empty, void chaos, right? That is what we have right at the beginning of this creation being formed. But we immediately see that the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. He's hovering over the depth. See, the Spirit of God is still involved and in control. That's that's established right off the bat. And we have immediately two parts of the Trinity, right? We have God the Father, and we have the Spirit. Look at verse 3. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters that were below uh, the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning a second day. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit according to their kind, with seed in them. And it was so. And the earth produced vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their kind, and the trees bearing fruit with the seed in them according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, a third day. Okay. The first thing we see is light. God creates light. And there's, there's significance here because really what we see is that the first thing God did was um, show himself to the world, right? God brought his light forth to, to his creation. Uh, the second thing we see is the expanse. And I want you to understand something about this, this idea of the expanse. I have no idea what's being talked about here. All right. I, I mean, I read everybody and nobody knows exactly what's being said here. There's a lot of ancient uh, cultures that thought there was a dome of water around the earth. It could be the difference between, you know, the the water or the seas or the oceans and this kind of atmospheric water. It could just mean sky. It could mean the heavens. We could be talking about the expanse of space and stars and, and planets. Uh, there's a lot of options. Um, and we just don't know what exactly that's talking about. I kind of just want to go with D, all of the above, right? It's just everything that's not down here, okay? That's what the expanse is talking about. Now, I want you to notice that on the third day, there are two creation acts. 
there are two creation acts. Uh, the last one is the vegetation being brought forth. Okay. Now the two creation acts automatically makes this day different. It, it changes it a little bit. But what you see is at the end of three days, the unproductive and uninhabitable world becomes productive. All of a sudden, out of the earth comes vegetation. It's producing something. It's no longer just chaos and void and empty, right? It's been separated. It's been ordered. It's been commanded to be productive, and it is so. That's the first thing I want you to see here. Uh, the other thing I want you to see is there's a theme here. Now, when we read this and we read the part about land, we hear earth. We see, we see the land below our feet, right? And that's not untrue, but actually there's an added element. If you were an ancient Israelite, you would have seen the promised land. You wouldn't have just heard dirt floor that I walk on. You would have heard God was already building the land he was going to give us. It was for us. This land theme is going to continue not just through Genesis, but through the entire Bible. God is bringing us to a place that he's preparing for us. Another theme that you see there is the seed. He starts talking about the seed producing in like kind. And this idea of a seed is going to carry its way through the Bible until the seed of Adam and the seed of Abraham, seed becomes Jesus Christ. So right off the bat, there's already a promise, a hint, a seed of this Messiah that will come. God is in charge of the chaos. That is the point of the first three days. He has ordered everything. He's ordered everything in your life. You can trust Him. Because even when your life looks chaotic and out of control, He's still ordering it. From here, we'll move on and we'll see that God is able to create life. See, the Old Testament uh, has this theme of God's control over life that goes through, through it entirely. You know, we see things like uh, Moses, right? Moses brings about the angel of death. And the angel of death uh, takes the life of some and preserves the life of others. Then we, we see people like Elijah who, uh, by prayer and petitioning God, someone comes back to life. And then we see Elisha do the same thing. And then later we'll see Jesus call Lazarus forth from the tomb. And every single one of these moments is a proclamation about God's control over the most uncontrollable thing in all of humanity, the reality of death. God has complete control over life and death. He demonstrates it over and over again so that someday when he himself, God himself, comes back to life, it is proof that he is God because only God has that power and control over life and death. That theme starts right here at the beginning of Genesis. Look at verse 14. Then God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and they shall serve as signs for the seasons and for the days and years. And they shall serve as lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on earth and to govern the light and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, a fourth day. Okay, so we see that God uh, is still, he's, he's still ordering things, but there's a bleed over uh, as he begins to order some things and as he begins to set up the conditions for the bringing about of life. Now, we've already seen the vegetation, but... Uh, classically, they wouldn't have thought about vegetation as being alive the way that we think of plants as being alive. When we think of something being alive, or I'm sorry, when they thought of something being alive, they thought of animated things, animals, right? So God is setting the conditions for there to be uh, life brought forth, okay? One thing that I want you to see here, uh, I I, this kind of actually made me laugh when I was looking this up because the... Uh, if you've ever run into somebody who reads their horoscope and, and is really into the constellations, 
Um, that goes way back, right? Like that goes back to ancient times. They thought that the stars controlled their destinies. They tried to read the sky for their fates and things like this. And if you look, uh, it's a throwaway. It's, it literally says, he made the stars also. That's not an accident. It's actually like, like this throwaway statement, again, kind of almost like a mockery of the nations around them, like, yeah, yeah, and like those things you think control your lives, he like also put them in place, right? It's a complete throwaway because it, it's showing God's ultimate power over all of nature and creation and how those aren't the things that guide our lives. Those aren't the things that decide what happens to us. Um, I didn't want you to miss that little throwaway because I... I giggled a little bit when I saw that. So look at verse 20. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. And God created uh, the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the water swarmed according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth and there was evening and there was morning a fifth day then god said let the earth produce living creatures according to their kind livestock and crawling things and animals of the earth according to their kind and it was so god made the animals of the earth according to their kind and the livestock according to their kind and everything that crawls on the ground according to its kind and god saw that it was good okay so one thing i want you to see here is that if you noticed the first three days and the, and, and the second pairing of three days, they are parallels, right? So on, uh, we see that light is brought into the world on day one, but the luminaries, the stars, the things that govern light are not brought in until day four, right? We see on day two, we see that there is sky and sea. And then on day five, we see that there are birds and fish, right? And then on day uh, three, when we got land and vegetation, now on day six, we get livestock and animals, right? There's a parallel going on here. Yet again, for me, I'm seeing the structure of this text as pointing to something specific. For just as long as the debate's been going on, one of the big issues has been, well, how did God create light on day one if he didn't create anything to emit light until day four. Well, the bottom line is still not the point because God can do that if he wants to do that, right? I, I'm not going to tell you like there proof right there. It's not about like, that's not the point, right? So we're not, we're not looking at these things and seeing definitive answers. We're seeing that they're, they're non-answers. They're not trying to give us that information. That's never been the goal of Genesis 1. We've just allowed ourselves culturally to be sidetracked by that argument for uh, forever like it's it's a crazy discussion right and there's so much more in this text if we will get out of the way of it so we see that uh the sixth day also matches the third day in this way it's going to it's going to have two acts of creation again so on the third day uh we got land and vegetation and on the sixth day we're going to get livestock and animals but something I want you to note about, I'm sorry, livestock and humans, but something I want you to note about the difference between the livestock, the vegetation, and the humans is that the livestock and the vegetation are brought forth from the land, as in almost as if God commanded the land to produce them, and then they are brought forth according to their kind. And I'll, I'll, we'll come back to that, but just keep that in mind. They're brought forth according to their kind. Now, I want to point something else out to you here. How is God judging what is good? Right? So it seems as though every day God has looked at what he's done and he said it's good. And I always thought that it was good because he was the one doing it. Right? Why would, he, you know, why would it not be good if God did it? And also, would he do it if it wasn't good? Right? That didn't make sense to me. But the, the key is if we look at the second day. The second day, he doesn't see anything good. It's the only day that we pass by without that comment being made or assigned to it. And we know when we get to the creation of man, he's going to say that it was very good. 
we're going to amp it up. So between those two clues, here's what we here's what we need to understand. God was judging what was good based on whether it was suitable for us. He was literally preparing all of this for us. This entire endeavor is so that he could share this community with humanity, with mankind, with each and every one of us. He was preparing a place for us. So the key is that as he's walking through what's good or what's not good, he's judging it based on what makes it good to share with us. This is incredible. See, I, I need you to understand something. We, we say, like, why did God create? Well, so he could be glorified. Okay, that is not untrue, but I need you to understand something about that. God was glorified before there was creation. God didn't need us to be glorified. His glory was perfect before we ever came onto the scene. So what's the difference? God created so he could share his glory with us. We get to participate in that. We get to benefit from it. This is, this is huge. This is a big difference. God controls chaos. He has control over life. And he loves us enough to prepare a place for us. What is the point of Genesis 1? The point of Genesis 1 is going to come right here as we see this climactic perfection. Right, We're going to see the climactic, the pinnacle creation act. And then we're going to see the goal of it all. The climactic moment of the story actually tips into chapter 2. And it's what the point of all of this has been. Look at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every, every living thing that moves on the earth. All right, so the first thing I want you to see here is that as God creates man, he does not bring them forth from the land. Now, what I don't mean, and we know we're going to get to Genesis 2 where he's going to create Adam out of dirt, right? But what I, what I mean is that God was directly involved in the creation of humans. He didn't call forth from the earth to produce them, right? God intentionally molded us directly, right? On top of that, he, uh, it, it says not of its own kind, right? The livestock were of their own kind and the vegetation was of its own kind. What's the difference? We are of the kind that shares with God. This is a huge deal. We are separated from everything in creation because we are the only thing made in God's image, the Imago Dei. This is the thing that gives all humans value. Did you know that being made in the image of God is actually the, the cornerstone um, value that creates our justice system? The reason that we have a justice system and that it works the way it does is because we believe that every single individual has value from their creator built into them. It's who we are. This is a huge deal. Now, I want you to see something else that's shocking here to the cultures around them. It's actually not a completely original idea that men were created in the image of God. Right? You can, you can easily just step over to their neighbors, the Egyptians, and you can see Pharaoh saying that he was made in the image of God, that he was a God. Right? There are two shocking elements to the way the Israelites wrote this piece. The first shocking element is this. It's not just kings or elites or rulers. It's all men, every single person. And then even more shocking it's women too. This would have been mind-blowing to the ancient Near Eastern cultures that surrounded them. They would have been listening and they would have gone, okay, so you think all men are... And what? Do you just say women? 
Like they would have, they would have had their minds blown in this moment. And here's what I want you guys to see. From the beginning, women were a part of this. They're, women aren't an afterthought. They're not a lesser piece of the pie. They were from the very beginning made in God's image and on equal footing with men. I'm going to point this out to you, but you're going to see that the dominion of men over women doesn't start until the fall. That's a consequence of sin. But the reality is God has always had an equal value and an equal place for women. And this, by the way, this belief system that we hold to, if you ever hear somebody criticizing um, Christianity for being oppressive to women, First of all, those arguments largely come out of the sexual revolution. But secondly, go look at the history of, the, of women's rights in the world. They are built on the bedrock of Judeo-Christian values. The reality is this book is what sets women free. <clears throat> Now, the next question I want to ask is, what is being made in God's image? Um, again, this was such a weird week of study for me because all I found when I looked for like what the image of God is was just like laundry lists of explanations. It was like, well, it could be this, and here's all the reasons why, but there's a problem with that. And, and it could be this, and here's all the reasons why, and there's a problem with that, right? Just over and over and over again. Just mass people have been asking the question, what does it mean to be made in the image of God since it was written? Okay? So I, I want to, uh, I, I think one thing is clear from the text. There is a functional aspect of that. We're the only thing in creation designed to rule alongside of God. There is um, dominion in our nature. It is for us to help God to, we're designed to be, um, rulers alongside of God over the things he's created. That's part of it. That also can't be all of it um, because that allows us to kind of gauge people's image of Godness by how much they are in charge of, right? So there's there's something more inherent than that. And I want to tell you uh, this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand over here and I want you to understand like I can't make this argument authoritatively from the scripture. So this is just me talking, okay? I think that one of the main things that is in the image of God is we are the only thing created that can have a connection with the Spirit of God. We're the only thing with a spirit that connects and communes with God's Spirit. Now think about that for a second. One of the things I struggled with is everything you come up with for the image of God that separates us from the animals, it doesn't separate us from the angels. And so that that's really difficult because it's like, well, animals can't like do right or wrong, okay? but angels can't. Like, well, animal, animals can't think or speak or like, do, you know, they can't, well, but angels can, right? Like, it's always kind of a stumbling block. Now, angels are spiritual beings, but I don't think they share in the spirit of God the way we do. That's what makes us different. So again, I can't prove that definitively. If I could, I'd probably make a lot of money. Um, but that is what I think is part, a huge piece of what it means to be made in God's image, is that our spirit and God's spirit can connect in a way that nothing else in creation can. We share in the spirit of God. We share in communion with him. Uh, and we will see that that connection, that spirit, is marred by sin. It's disrupted. And what Christ comes to do is he comes to set that right and make that connection available again. Look at verse 29. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you. And to every animal of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which, uh, which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. We're not going to stop here for long. I want you to just stop and see that that the very good is that we are the pin, pinnacle of God's crea creation. Everything he did was building to this climactic moment where he built us. We are what is special 
about creation. We are the thing that God was excited to prepare a place for and to share with. Look at verse, look at uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And so the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their heavenly lights. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because on it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Okay, this is the climactic moment of the entire story. This is what everything has been building to. This is where uh, the, the writer wants you to focus right here. See, because everything else has been paired, and it's had this kind of structural progression, but the seventh day stands alone. It's completely outside of the boundaries of everything else, and it is intentionally the number seven. It is the seventh day, the perfect day. Verses two and three, they have four Hebrew lines in them. These four Hebrew lines, of the four Hebrew lines, three of them have seven words, and in those three verses, the middle word of those seven Hebrew words is seventh day. So three times at the center structure of the entire uh, section is the word seventh day, seventh day, seventh day. The goal is to focus you in and bring to the forefront and emphasize something here matters. It's important. It's big. You want to look right here. That's what's going on. And then we see that, that it's sanctified. He sanctified the seventh day. I want you to understand what this is. This is the inauguration of heaven. The seventh day was the day that God's creation had been perfected and he could begin to restfully fellowship with us in a perfect place forever. That is what heaven is supposed to be. It started right here. It was this perfect place where God's work was finished and he began, he began to co-rule. My choice, right? He's delegating to us rulership. He began to co-rule alongside of his favorite creation, the thing that he had made all this for, and it was restful and it was peaceful. Now, I don't want you to mishear me. I'll talk about this more when we get to the fall as well, but this doesn't mean that there was no work. But do you understand that work was designed to be restful? See, when we find work that fills us up, it is restful. When we're productive in ways that feed our spirit, it is restful. See, what happens after the fall is that work becomes toilsome, unproductive, hard. It begins to not fill us up. It begins to take the life out of us. But in this moment, on the seventh day, when everything was perfect, it was sanctified and it was restful. Why did God create? It wasn't to be glorified. He was already glorified. It was to share His glory with us. The thing about Genesis 1 is that you can get lost in this argument over what happened in the first moments of creation. And you can miss that at the very beginning of the Bible, have you ever heard the Bible called God's love letters to us? I've never heard that phrase. We miss that all the time because we're looking for these extraneous stupid things like, well, you know, it says right here that whatever, it was 24 hours. I don't care. Because what I see now when I open Genesis 1 is that God is telling me from the first moments how much he loved me, how much he cared for me. He's telling me that I can trust him because he's ordered chaos. He's telling me that he can save me because he has control over life. And he's telling me that he prepared everything for me to be with him in permanent rest forever. God loves us that much. And here's the best part. Someday, way after this point, Jesus would look at his disciples moments before he left and he would say, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going ahead and I'm going to do what? This exact same thing. He's building the place where we will once again be in perfect community, 
in perfect rest, in perfect love with him. So the question is when you read Genesis 1 and when you walk through your life, do you understand how powerful your God is? Do you understand how much he loved you specifically? How much you can trust him? How capable he is and powerful he is to save you? Because if you get into Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and you're trying to dissect the minutes and hours of the verses, you're missing the point. We're going to dive into Genesis and my hope is that as we unfold these texts, as we break them down, you see the love story that God starts on the first pages of the Bible. That from the very first moments, from the first time he mentions the seed and the land, he has a plan to march redemption all the way to the cross. It's already started. And we're not off the first page yet. So spend time this week asking yourself what you actually believe about your God. Is your God all-powerful to save? Is your God all-powerful to control the chaos of your life? And does your God actually love you? We'll see in, I think, two weeks, the oldest attack of the enemy in the entire Bible. Did God really say that? And God, on the very first page, has already said, I love you. So don't believe the lie of the enemy that says, did God really say that? Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of Young Adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and the sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.